Funding for this edition of Think Tank with Steve Adubato has been provided by RWJ Barnabas Health, the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, PSENG, committed to providing safe, reliable energy now and in the future, the New Jersey Economic Development Authority, the Healthcare Foundation of New Jersey, New Jersey Board of Public Utilities, Clean Energy Program, Johnson & Johnson, the Port Authority of New York and New Jersey, moving the region through air, land, rail, and sea. And by Valley Bank. Promotional support provided by the New Jersey Business and Industry Association. And by New Jersey Monthly, the magazine of the Garden State, available at newsstands. I'm Steve Adubato. This is Think Tank. You're also looking at Nicole Swennerton, our senior producer. Nicole, um, three totally different guests on this show. One, um, Thomas Brostom. Thomas uh, he's Brostom. from Orsted. We're going to be talking about wind power. Um, also, our good friend Marjorie Perry talking about race, talking about business. She's a very successful business person. But out of the box, people are going to see Dr. Perry Halkaitis from Rutgers School of Public Health. Why is that such an important conversation? It's such an important conversation. Dr. Halkidis talks about the state of COVID right now. And right now, meaning we are looking to go back to school. Kids are looking to go back to playing sports. Mm. Are we really ready to do that? And while the program may be seen after these decisions have been made, um, we can look back and say, did we do the right thing? Yeah, but you know what? The decision could be made, but the decision could be unmade. I mean, how many sports leagues? Yeah, we're going to play. Eh, we're not going to play. We found out things are different. It's a moving target. Absolutely. So, Perry, I mean, Dr. Halkaitis, right? Okay. That's how you say his name. But Dr. Halkaitis talks about that, that not only would we have to be flexible, but we have to set our priorities. I was struck by how he said, of course, we want sports. Of course. But that's not the priority. The priority, schools, yes. people have to go back to work, um, right? Absolutely. One other thing he talks about is the contact tracing and um, how difficult that is to accomplish when it's taking 16 to 18 days to get tests back. And these people aren't quarantining when you're waiting for a test. So how can t contact tracing even happen? So these Some are things that, that we way. need to get right first. Yeah, I know what we're also going to get right is uh, our funders. Tell folks who they are. Sure, we'd love to thank RWJ Barnabas Health, PSCNG, the New Jersey Economic Development Authority, and the Board of Public, Public Utilities. Yeah, um, so let's do this. As we set this program up, this Think Tank program, just realize this. The whole purpose of Think Tank is to bring on people with totally different perspectives, different professions, different industries, who look at the world in different ways. And I always said this, and Nicole and our producers laugh at me when I, they still do, probably behind my back as well, when I say, um, Make sure in the end, no matter what you think you believe, when you watch these programs and you hear different points of view, most of all, make sure you think for yourself. I know you're laughing, Nicole. I'm not laughing because I totally agree. It's true. So without further ado, think for yourself as you watch Think Tank.
This is Steve Adubato. Thank you so much for joining us remotely. Um, we want to kick off this program with a very compelling and important conversation with Dr. Perry Halkidis, who is Dean of the Rutgers School of Public Health. Doctor, good to see you. Good to see you too. Okay, sports, schools, COVID, let's put it together. Reading a piece that you wrote called High School Football Tip. You can't wear PPE while playing left tackle. Make the case that football makes no sense. Look, I would, I would be the first of all, thank you for having me here. I would be the first person to say that I love sports, I want sports. I'm so upset I'm not going to the US Open this year, you have no idea. However, I think that in a society that's trying to function, that's trying to get back to some sense of normality, there needs to be some um, concerted effort to open the institutions that are the most critical. And in my mind, as we think through the next few months, those are schools, those are places where we can vote, and those are businesses where people's livelihood actually depends on having clientele. What you get when you contain the virus and you're able to not have people die at the rates that they're dying is then you get to have football and concerts and big weddings and all those wonderful things we were, we were used to having that would happen in a normal time. But this is not the time for that. And I will come back to the comment I made about football, which is it is a contact sport. I worry about the infection being passed from, from the player to player. More importantly, I'm worried about the infection then getting back to the families of those players where there are vulnerable people who may die of the disease. Um, we're gonna talk offline because our 16-year-old Nick who works with us on this production, he and others are saying, wait a minute, why is it okay for baseball? And again, we're doing this at the end of 2000, excuse me, the end of the summer, uh, 2020. We don't know what's gonna be happening. Why is baseball okay, at least for now? What about basketball in the bubble? We're gonna talk offline about that or do another conversation, but I'm gonna go back to the question of testing, contract tracing, and why it's simply not working as well as it should be. Yeah, so great question. Um, because, so first of all, how I wish we had a national strategy that told us what to do. Excuse like, me, the president, I'm sorry for interrupting. President Trump said, it's not on me. It right. is on the states and the governors. Right. right. Correct? Right. He did. And what we saw in countries that had a national strategy was that the virus was contained. So let me do my, my Greek pride story for a second, right? You know, my parents are immigrants from Greece. Country is an economic turmoil for what? 12 years? They've contained that virus. You know why they've contained that virus? Because everybody made a decision that they were part of a civil society that takes care of other human beings, right? And so they stayed in their homes, they had to text to leave, and they contained the disease. You have to take severe measures. Now, let me get to your question about testing and contact tracing. Uh, it's not working as perfectly as we would want it to work because we're muddling through all of it. We have 51 different responses in the United States, right? And in, and, and in some states, the tests are available. In other states, the tests are not available. Let me, uh, as an example of why I think it's really not working is my own personal story. So I'm a scientist and I make myself a subject sometimes. So about three weeks ago, I went to a local clinic here in Newark, which is my hometown. And I, I had a PCR test, a viral test. Um, and I indicated at the time I had no symptoms, right? Which we know 40 to 50% of people do not. Asymptomatic. Asymptomatic. 
16 days later, I got the results. So testing's not working in some ways. How therefore will contact tracing work? Imagine if I actually, I ended up, I was negative and I knew I was gonna be negative because I have antibodies. How would contact tracing work if I had been floating around for 16 days in my community spreading the disease to people? So this is the problem we have right now. In some ways, the testing in some places in the United States is, is as bad as it was in March. And so that's that. And the contact tracing, you know, in our state, in the state of New Jersey, I mean, I think we're fortunate right now, we have enough bodies that are out at the local health departments. You know, the Department of Health is working 24-7 to, sure. to ramp this up. But what good is getting a test result that's 16 days old? Is it virtually, okay. no, we were, we were 14 days until I, in fact, had the Rutgers, dare I say, the saliva test um, at one of the local government offices, and I think it was three days. Reasonable. 16 days, useless. 14 days, useless. Right. But think about this for a second, Steve. The saliva test, which is the one that's turning around absolutely quickly, right? Everybody doesn't have access to that right now, that's right? That's right. We need to give everybody access to that test. Three days, fine. Because then you say, here's my case. I'm going to contact that person within 24 hours. I'm going to get the names of the contacts. And then contact tracing is really going to work. Question. Um, you understand the human. You, you love sports, you love tennis, I do, I, you know, I'm, I, I, by the way, I play golf when I can. In my mind, I think it's safer than football, basketball, am I right? Or Correct. am I just telling myself Correct. what I want to think? No, it's a, I, I, I'm a, I'm a, I do addictions re research also, it's called harm reduction, right? So which is less <laughs> harmful, right? So ultimately, tennis, golf, you don't need to be tackling anybody. Nope. You don't need to be touching anybody. No. Nope. Basketball, soccer, or as we like to call it, you know, what the rest of the world calls football. Um, football, you touch people. So, yep. yes, it is about harm reduction. Uh, I, when it comes to schools, I need to do this. Ugh. As we do this program, literally a couple of days after the governor, people say changed his, his point of view. I don't know if he changed it, but Governor Murphy said, um, you can go online, you can have your schools online if you cannot meet certain criteria to keep kids, uh, students and, and faculty, staff safe. The right decision? Yeah, so um, I have what I refer to as the Perry Halkidis plan for schools, which I'll share with you, which share. I actually think is a, is a different plan. Look, I get the pressure to get the kids back to schools. I totally understand social and emotional development, absolutely. Here's what I think needs to happen. The high school kids, remote maybe even the junior high school kids, right? They stay home, they do remote, they're basically adults, they're almost adults. They don't really wanna go to school anyway. They can do their work, for, they're gonna do, they can do their work from home. Then you use the high school buildings, right? And the junior high school buildings for the K through five kids. And you spread them out all, all along those multiple buildings. That way, those children who I think need the most social interaction, with, with teachers, the most social interaction with others' kids would be in a physical space. That's what my, about that's keeping my... teachers safe and faculty and excuse me and staff? It will keep them safe if we can use if we can spread the kids out. If we can take the, the twenty five kids in a classroom, right, and say eight are going to go to this building, eight are going to go to that building, eight is that that would be ideal. But you're right. 
you're, you know, I said this actually the other day at some event that I was doing. I was like, we are expecting a five-year-old to like socially distance, to physically distance and wear a mask all the time. And the five-year-old in the White House doesn't do that. So why do we expect the five-year-old who's running, who's in our, in our schools to do that? Uh, I hate to end on that note, but we're out of time and people can decide for themselves what to do with it. Dr. Perry Halkidis is dean of the Rutgers School of Public Health. Also, I want to make it uh, clear that uh, as we speak, you are in fact, um, are you co-chairs with Micheline Davis of the Public Health Committee? Um, on the Newark reopening, right? Yeah, we were. I work with my friend Micheline Davis on helping the doing the testing and tracing elements for this for our wonderful city of, New, of Newark. Yes, terrific. Hey, listen, uh, Perry, thank you so much for joining us. It will not be the last time. All the best. My pleasure. Thank you. I'm Steve Adubato. Stay with us. We'll be right back. To watch more Think Tank with Steve Adubato, find us online and follow us on social media. Valley's all about making life easier for clients, and that's why we're all about smiles, too. So every day, we make it possible for home buyers to become homeowners, for folks chasing their dreams to become entrepreneurs, for parents to plan today for their children's tomorrow, and for communities to get better every day. You see, when we know we've put a smile on a customer's face, well, that puts one on ours, too. We are pleased to be joined by Thomas Brostrom, who is CEO, Orsted North America Offshore. Good to see you, sir. Yeah, good to see you. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Listen, talk to folks about what Orsted is and why it matters so much when it comes to uh, clean energy. Sure. So Orsted is a Danish company, a world leader in renewable and offshore winds. Uh, it's actually got a very interesting background. It used to be Danish oil and natural gas, but over the last 10 years, it has transitioned into being a, a world leader in, in, in offshore wind. And uh, five years ago, we now entered the, the U.S. market and have uh, a lot of projects uh, in development up and down the, the eastern seaboard. Yeah, let's put things in perspective, folks. We are very much involved um, with public awareness around clean energy. We're working with the Clean Energy Program together with the uh, folks at the Board of Public Utilities. Our job is to help people better understand what clean energy really means. Could you, could for us, Thomas, when it comes to wind uh, energy, ocean wind, offshore wind, these different phrases used, but I know that off the coast of Atlantic City, that's where we see those uh, physical, um, I don't know, what, what are they called? Yeah, they're called wind turbine generators, uh, essentially. Um, so that would be the right, right term, offshore wind farms. How long have they been around, that technology? So we built the first uh, offshore wind farm back in the early 90s off the coast of Denmark. And uh, then based around the millennium, uh, it started to pick up uh, around uh, other places in, in Europe. So we're looking at 20, 30-year-old uh, industry, so relatively new. Where is New Jersey in this effort? Because I know there is a New Jersey wind port, but I want to put that in perspective. Is New Jersey behind, ahead? Where are we compared to most other states, much less than the, the, the world? 
no question that the U.S. is coming in, you know, a bit later than uh, certainly Europe, who's been spearheading this. But uh, when it comes to to the U.S., New, New Jersey is uh, is a front runner. It's it's a leader. We've seen clear leadership uh, from the administration, from the legislature, Governor Murphy, Senate President Sweeney, uh, two strong leaders on on offshore wind. So, in that sense, uh, New Jersey is very much at uh, you know at the front of the pack here. You know, there's also something called the Orsted Pro New Jersey Trust. Is that what it's called? What That's, is that? Yeah, so as part, of, as part of our large ocean wind project, so we got an award uh, last summer uh, to build an 1,100 megawatt project, which is enough uh, energy to uh, provide 500,000 homes in New Jersey with offshore wind uh, electricity. As part of that uh, proposal, uh, we have also committed to uh, invest 15 million US dollars into New Jersey minority-owned businesses that want to take part in the offshore wind industry. Well, I want to understand something. Investing in minority-owned businesses, but uh, Orsted is doing what your company is doing to um, be successful financially to make a difference environmentally. What does it mean to invest in minority-owned businesses? Help us understand that. Yeah, so obviously uh, the clean electricity is, is important, but actually building a local supply chain and uh, economic development is also important to, to uh, many states, including uh, New Jersey. For us as a developer, we want to have the right workforce who can also uh, do the, the different things that we need to, to do to build the projects. Uh, many, much of that, let's say, expertise sits in Europe. We want to bring it here. We want to localize it. That's why we're willing to also invest and train, you can say, um, local companies. And, and then we just have an idea to also support, you know, women-owned businesses and all the majority-owned uh, businesses. Help people understand where the dare I say it, jobs are in your industry? Where are the jobs? What are the jobs? Yeah, I mean, that, that, that thousand of jobs. So, so obviously it depends on uh, where you are in the development cycle. But uh, for the first phase here, that's a lot of development work uh, going on. So that will be classic uh, engineering jobs. It will be, you know, setting up our local offices, anything from finance, HR, all the functions you would need. But the minute you move into construction, you need people who can uh, work at sea, work at heights. And once you've built the project, you need um, a workforce who can go out, service the wind farms, technicians going out offshore to the wind farms, making sure they can repair things if, if, uh, if that's needed. So a lot of jobs. And then there's a whole standing up a new industry uh, where you can have the producers, uh, the manufacturers, of the, the wind turbines or the foundations or the vessels or the cables, all those could also be present over time, uh, obviously, in, in the U.S. and in New Jersey. You know, I'm curious about this. Um, COVID has affected everyone, every industry, all of us in one way or another um, have had to innovate, change. Dis it's been, business has been disrupted. Some have shut down. How has COVID affected your industry? Yeah, I think we are relatively fortunate that we are selling clean electricity and uh, the demand for electricity is still, you know, there. Uh, so in that sense, we are fortunate. That said, obviously, we're dependent on our suppliers that they can go out, um, you know, deliver their 
goods and services to us. So we have not seen major impacts, uh, for instance, to our projects. We have been able to go in and out um, at sea. We also work from home, for instance, and uh, we have the, the issues of how do you keep the momentum, but uh, I would say uh, at a high level, very limited impact from COVID-19. We saw a bit in, in New York at some point where we could not go into port uh, for a, a few weeks, uh, so we could not do some of the, the surveys, but at a high level, we've been uh, limited uh, impacted by, by COVID-19 so far. Well, I assure you, uh, Mr. Brostrom, Brostrom, that while we continue our efforts to help the public better understand what clean energy means, we'll continue conversations with uh, other folks from your organization, and we appreciate you taking the time with us. All the best. Thank you. Likewise. I'm Steve Adubato. Thank you so much. We'll be right back right after this. To watch more Think Tank with Steve Adubato, find us online and follow us on social media. Welcome back. Steve Adubato here. We are joined by our good friend, uh, Marjorie Perry, who is President and CEO, MZM Construction and Management. Good to see you, Marjorie. Good to see you always, Steve. How are you today? Doing all right. By the way, Marjorie is a trustee of our not-for-profit organization. Let me uh, get that out of the way. But more importantly, she knows construction, she knows business, she knows management and getting things done. So in the age of COVID, as we do this program at the end of the summer 2020, how tough has it been? The construction side, if you're on the commercial side, has been strong. You know, we, we were always essential. We never shut down. Uh, uh, it truly was, if you were in the right place at the right time, you had some very, very serious best practices in place before COVID hit. Uh, most of the construction companies, like myself, are, continued on through this whole uh, COVID scenario. Yeah, you we know, did. we had Governor Christie on, and he said these things publicly as well. That Governor Murphy has not done enough to quote help small business. You say? I think that's a catch twenty two statement. I think uh, some small businesses weren't prepared to even know how to get caught or how to be saved or how to get to the next level. You know, one of the things that uh, Steve, you and I have talked about over time about education, continuous education, and I've always talked to smaller businesses: build your relationships with your bank. If you didn't have a relationship with your bank and really strong financial people backing you up, great CPAs, great attorneys, and not even great, maybe just good. You could not apply right. for these loans. You had to be able to apply for these loans. So what you saw in the middle of this, and I don't know what he means by help small businesses, is that how do you go and lend money to someone that has maybe not this financial records that they need to see in order to say, okay, let these funds go towards you. Now, I'm not going to say there wasn't some gamemanship in this. For sure there was. So, but if you weren't at the top of the food chain on your small business, yes, you paid a heavy price during this pandemic. Hmm. Marjorie, let's talk, about, let's talk about the digital divide in education. How much does it concern you? I think broadband now is a real big issue in some of our urban areas. And you can't choose between paying that to make sure that your children can do what they need to do or you eat. Sure, it's a big concern because now we're looking at September where all these students will be learning online. With what? Who's going to back them up with the tools that they need? Do they know how to log in? Do the parents know how to help them to log in? 
you know, uh, just before you and I went on the air, you know, a couple of questions, Bart, can you do this? Can you do that? Okay, I have an IT person on standby to support me in my efforts. Who has that in these homes, in these urban areas? And remember, these people are out of work now because they were the first to go because of the hospitality, travel industry, That's right. uh, maybe food packing. I, I, I don't see how the divide is going to do anything but get wider as we go along. Because this broadband thing is a big deal. Very big deal. We're taping at the end of the summer 2020. It'll be seen after that as well. And we'll see where we are at the schools. But just remember when we are speaking right now. Marcia, let me ask you this. You and I have also had countless conversations over the several decades that we've known each other and been friends about race, about racism. Um, some of them publicly, but a lot of them privately. So this series we're doing that you know very well uh, as a trustee of ours called Confronting Racism, particularly um, given the horrific murder of George Floyd on video. What does confronting, I mean, there's so many different aspects, but when I say confronting racism, you say what? Listen, I think everybody has a bias. I think people are racist against somebody that doesn't put a mask on. Let me just qualify what I mean by that. Or does. Or does have a mask on. I think that these tribal conversations that are going on now about racism, yes, racism truly exists. But what do we do if we're going to keep talking about racism versus how do we take a, a subjective process and make it objective. And that's through policy change. So I always say when people come to me now, I think they finally realize I was African-American with all this Black Lives Matter movement. <laughs> I, I thought I was the day before, but I always say, okay, now what? I've gone through bias. I've gone through gender discrimination. I've gone through called the N-word. I've been through all of that. And one of the things that I'm hoping for out of this conversation about racism, because it's not going to go away, it's how do we pivot around it and make it work to our advantage, especially if you feel that you're a minority person that's been disadvantaged for so long. Now, you and I both know uh, affirmative action has been around for a very long time, so it's not a new conversation. And two, it's hard for people to retool in a dime on Black Lives Matter. And three, what does defunding the police look like? You still need your police departments in order to take care of everybody's community. So I, I, it's a mixed bag. And yes, the implicit bias and the racial bias truly exists. Uh, I always have a hard time of how do we take it from the streets to the lawmakers to implement it in policy. And that means higher wages, opportunity to grow, uh, maybe not there's a 7% cap on when you're doing affirmative action job. Maybe you could just go in and because you're the best business available and you don't have to go in as an MBE, WBE, you just bid the job direct on. So there's a lot of mind so minority owned business, women owned business, right? Absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. But, but Margie, hold on one second. I, I'm curious about this. You, you've always spoken your mind. Yes. Never hold back. Yes. Do you get any pushback? within the African-American community about some of your views? We can eat our own in our community. <laughs> what do you mean by that? Sometimes we take each other out. Sometimes right in our own community, we, will, we, were, we're, we, we get so nervous or so territorial that we may take somebody out if we don't quite understand the strength or the value add of that person that's at the table. 
So if you have somebody of color that's graduated from Harvard and is trying to work in a community with somebody with a high school education, that person automatically becomes a threat in the community. They just can't see that we could work together and be of one accord at times. So yes, yeah, sometimes there's complete infighting in the community. Uh, sometimes that drives me more crazy than what I have to deal with on the outside. And other business leaders have said the same thing. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. You know, I'm looking at the uh, Kamala Harris situation, you know, where you have some yeah, African-Americans yeah. who want to focus on, okay, fine, she's not really African-American. What are you talking about? What? Where, where are you going to go with that? Let's what is focus that conversation? On, where does that go? Where does it go? <laughs> Let's focus on her qualifications. Not that she's black right. enough. So that, that yeah. sometimes bothers me a little bit. Yeah, by the way, we're doing this. This will be seen after the election, so we'll see whether she becomes the vice president-elect and the vice president. We'll see how things play out. But as always, Marjorie, thank you, my friend. Take care of yourself. Thank you, Steve. Thanks for having me. You got it. I'm Steve Adubato. Thank you so much for watching us. We'll see you next time. Think Tank with Steve Adubato has been a production of the Caucus Educational Corporation. Funding has been provided by RWJ Barnabas Health, the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, PSENG, the New Jersey Economic Development Authority, the Healthcare Foundation of New Jersey, New Jersey Board of Public Utilities, Clean Energy Program, Johnson & Johnson, the Port Authority of New York and New Jersey, and by Valley Bank. Promotional support provided by the New Jersey Business and Industry Association and by New Jersey Monthly. In the fabric of America, they are the toughest threads. One of the first things they learned was the code that every service member lives by. Leave no one behind. Now all of us need to live by it too because some veterans are being left behind. 20 of them take their own lives every day. Learn how to be there for a veteran at betherefoveterans.com. Honor the code. Be there. Leave no one behind.